everyone. Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. We are on episode number 32. Today we've got a lot to cover. We've got to recap what happened with those Fed minutes and what does it actually mean for us? Is it as bad as it seemed when some folks read that out loud yesterday that we may see some 50 BP hikes? we got to talk about that. We're going to talk also a little bit about what's going on with that train derailment, some uh, specific uh, cases regarding what's going on with, uh, with the, how are unions involved and what are Democrats versus Republicans saying? Really interesting interesting insight, by the way. We'll talk a little bit about Tesla, China, and then we'll see what else we can get to. But boy, we've got a lot to cover. So first, uh, a shout out to NVIDIA. 10% movement to the upside. We're going to be going through NVIDIA in much more detail in the course member live stream. By the way, thanks to the success of the last uh, flash sale, we are bringing back a Tesla uh, uh, investor week uh, because we've got investor day coming up uh, next week. So we're bringing back a, a week of a flash sale for the Tesla investor day. Uh, and that'll start now. So if you're interested in those programs on building your wealth, link down below for our Tesla investor giga week. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, yeah, NVIDIA absolutely killing it. Uh, we'll, again, we'll go through this in detail in the course member live stream. But really what's so phenomenal uh, is that there is so much attention on AI and everyone in, uh, in, in the investing community who's not an engineer seems to miss the idea that you can leverage Google and NVIDIA's AI technology and use that AI technology to build your own technology, to teach your own algorithm. It's really actually phenomenal. It's something that we do as well at Househack uh, and the opportunities in AI uh, to, to streamline labor-intensive tasks phenomenal, whether it's uh, graphics generation, uh, analysis, uh, banking, finance, uh, you name it. It's it's absolutely incredible what, what AI is, is working on, uh, and we're really excited about that. I think uh, something uh, that's coming in the future as well will be sort of uh, a, uh, a more of what we already have, but uh, uh, AI trading, you're going to start seeing a lot of that. Uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, so uh, congratulations to the folks over at NVIDIA. I, I personally, I think it's a big uh, pricing power play, and mostly because a lot of people have been trying to also escape this high margin, really high free cash flow business for the fear of less PC demand. It's complete nonsense. Uh, and of course, PC demand has fallen, but uh, numbers for NVIDIA, I think this is their last quarter where they're actually comparing against some pretty tough comps, uh, which means uh, Q1 of, of next year could be pretty phenomenal, or I'm sorry, well, yeah, Q1 of this year, 2023, we just reported Q4. But anyway, absolutely great. Matterport, I was really surprised by. They're flat right now in pre-market, but a lot better than I expected. Some of their margins, though, I was surprised on subscriptions are compressing. So we'll check that out as well in the uh, course member live in, in some more detail. But uh, it, not, as, not as bad as I feared. And uh, we're finding that consistently. A lot of companies beating in ways that we wouldn't have expected. Uh, which is great. That's fantastic. Uh, that either means the true earnings recession is ahead of us uh, or it's just not coming. <laughs> so uh, we'll see. That, of course, uh, brings up uh, the idea of us having to catch up on the Fed minutes. So I know yesterday there, were, uh, there, was, there was some fun with, uh, with uh, uh, the uh, choppiness in the video when I covered them live. Uh, but it sounded like the audio came through just fine. Uh, so many of you seem to appreciate that. But uh, we'll go through some of my thoughts on that a little bit more clearly uh, right now. Okay, here we go. 
So what's Wall Street saying about the Federal Reserve Minutes? And what says Kevin about the Federal Reserve Minutes? Because in my opinion, there were two massive things that we had to pay attention to. One of which I'm actually going to play you something that Jerome Powell said in May of 2022. Nobody wanted to hear this in May of 22. Nobody. But when Jerome Powell said it, it was so salient to me that I've been pounding the table about this and it got reiterated in the minutes today. This is absolutely remarkable, so we'll have to touch on that. But first, why don't we just go ahead and hit what some of Wall Street is saying. First, we'll look at uh, Nick T, Fed's mouthpiece, and then, of course, we'll jump on over to a Morgan Stanley piece talking about the minutes and some of their thoughts on the minutes. So first, what does Nick T tell us? Well, one of them, he, of course, hits on one of the two most salient pieces, but he only hits on one of the two most salient pieces. So I'll give you part one now and part two, stand by. So part one, he reiterates, much like what it was immediately picked up on, this idea that a few members wanted to raise 50 BP. Now, I, I want to make this very, very clear. This has, nothing has changed here. Bullard's been talking about front-end loading hikes, uh, rate hikes, forever. Uh, like, since this rate hiking cycle started at the beginning of 2022, he's been talking about, let's just go 100 basis points, 100 basis points, let's get to four, let's get to our terminal rate, whatever that may be, as soon as possible. And there's this expectation now that, oh, somehow, because now all of a sudden the minutes are reflecting that some members over at the Fed are like, let's go 50, there's this idea that, oh, maybe markets are going to start pricing in 50. In my opinion, it's complete nonsense. It doesn't make sense uh, to go 50, and I'll tell you exactly why. First of all, let's lay out the schedule here, okay? The difference of going 50 here in March is really to speed things up by about five weeks. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to take the June 25 BP hike and basically move it up to March to speed it up before you get to your May meeting by about five weeks. The problem with that is by taking a five-week advantage. So in other words, if like you're going to bet on March 22nd, March 22nd, write that one down, okay? March 22nd is the next Fed meeting. If you're gonna make a trade on the March 22nd meeting, my opinion is you're going to have a lot of fear going in of people going, that's it, they're gonna rug pull us, they're gonna go with a 50. All that buys the Fed is a five-week advantage. While at the same time they get that five-week advantage, they would turn around and you know what they would do? They would absolutely kill their credibility, whatever they have left, right? Because now they, much like me, would become certified flip-floppers. And it would show, uh-oh, we really are starting to sound like the 1970s. Think about that for a moment. All of this is about psychology at the Federal Reserve. When bad data comes out, the Federal Reserve has already trained us to tighten financial conditions. When we got a tight jobs report, inflation report, PPI report, and tomorrow we have the PCE report, guess what markets immediately did? Markets immediately tightened financial conditions. In other words, treasury yields rose. We're at the highest level on treasury yields right now since November. We're sitting at 3.94%. Yesterday, I was uh, looking at some real estate actually down at Chula Vista, and the agents that were telling me a week or two ago, oh, it feels like things are bottoming. Oh, things are turning around in real estate. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. You guys are getting head faked because interest rates just popped up again, and it's just going to take another couple weeks before it shows up in the real estate market. Guess what a real estate agent starts telling me yesterday? Yeah, you know, a few weeks ago, we were selling stuff again with multiple offers, but now I feel like we're right back in the doldrums. People aren't showing up again. It's like quiet again. I'm like, yeah, because rates just skyrocketed. Like it's not brain surgery. It's, it's actually quite simple. But anyway, here's the problem. In the 1970s, 
the the we we went into the 1970s with excessive price caps, ceilings on things like certain food items, gas, oil. These things led to massive shortages for I mean gas. Everybody knows about the 1970s gas shortages. It's crazy. A lot of these price uh, or, or shortages of goods and services were created because of price ceilings, caps. Anytime you put a price cap on something, you artificially keep the price low. But what you do is you create deadweight losses. It's kind of like rent control. When you put a cap on rent, you temporarily make people feel better, but you actually substantially damage the future market and you make things more unaffordable. You actually create more housing inflation with rent control. Almost, I mean, 90 plus percent of economists agree with exactly what I just said. Now, here's the problem. And this is what happened in the 70s. We removed the price caps. So what happens when you remove the price caps? Prices freaking skyrocket, right? But guess what happened at the same time in, this, in about 73? We left the gold standard. So at the same time as we removed price caps, we left the gold standard and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, look at all this inflation. The inflation was being caused by having left uh, 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 or removed the price caps. But it happened at the same time as, oh no, we just left the gold standard. So the psychological impression was, Oh no, this fiat experiment is a disaster. We're gonna have so much inflation. It broke inflation expectations. It killed the psychology of markets. This is why I have a course on the psychology of money and the zero to millionaire real estate investing course when it talks about in negotiating with real estate agents or what we talk about in the stocks course. A lot of it is based on psychology, human psychology. Markets are graphs essentially of human emotion after all. Anyway, so so now all of a sudden you have this impression in the 1970s that, oh my gosh, we left the gold standard. That's obviously why we have all this inflation. And what was the Fed doing? The Fed was constantly flip-flopping. They're like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll raise rates a little. Oh, it looks like things are getting better. Okay, we'll reduce rates a little. Oh no, okay, things are getting bad again. Okay, we'll raise rates again. That like flip-floppiness led to a disaster. It led to Paul Volcker. That flip-floppiness, no pants on, no seriousness, no might, led to Paul Volcker. Now, a lot of conditions created that leading up to it. Obviously, the uh, you know gas shortages, the removal of the price caps at the same time as the breaking of inflation expectations via uh, post-leaving uh, the gold standards, right? All, all of that contributed to Paul Volcker. The problem is the Fed does not want to repeat the disaster of what came right before Paul Volcker, which is flip-flopping. They do not want to appear to be flip-floppers. I think that in their ideal world, they still want to tell you inflation is transitory. So anyway, to get a five-week advantage to become certified flip-floppers is, it makes zero sense at all. Like things are not like all of a sudden that bad that the Fed needs to like essentially try to rug pull markets. It, it makes zero logical sense at all. Uh, so I do not see that happening at all. And hey, may, maybe I'll be wrong, but I think the odds of me being wrong on this one are like 1%. Uh, I think it's very, very, very low. I'm pretty confident in this. Uh, so, you know, of course you've got Mr. Bullard and Mester saying things like, hey, I don't see much merit in delaying our approach to that level. Honestly, at this point, I guarantee you the other members of the Federal Reserve Board are like, Oh, Bullard, say something else, man. You've been saying that for 18 months. I could see, like, Bullard at the meeting. Guys, we need to front and load it. And everybody else is like, all right, got anything else to contribute? Because that's the same thing you said every one of the last 14 meetings. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, anyway, and then, of course, you have the counter argument, which I think is a fair counter argument, which is this one here, Tom Barkin saying something like this. That theory to me requires more confidence in understanding the effectiveness of a tighter rate policy than I currently have. Now, that's actually really important because we do not. OK, 
two th- schools of thought in, 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 in economies. And we were talking about this actually with, with the team uh, right after we came back from, uh, from San Diego yesterday looking at real estate for, uh, for House Act. Uh, we had a, a spa office meeting. It was great. And uh, we were talking about the, the two different trains of thoughts, uh, Austrian School of Economics, Keynesian. Anyway, uh, one of the important uh, uh, characteristics here is that maybe inflation is not solely dictated by rates. After all, we had 40 years of declining interest rates and no inflation. Maybe instead, oh my gosh, imagine this, inflation is caused by the rapid or sudden acceleration in the expansion of, uh, of, of the money supply. Now that's not to be confused with, okay, if you print money, you create inflation. We've been printing money for 40 years but we'd never printed money at the scale we did uh, it, during the pandemic. And, and that is, a, is not a Keynesian belief, right? That is, that is sort of just a belief of like, usually you look at interest rates. Anyway, the point here is Tom Barkin is basically telling us, look, we, we don't know uh, that front ending rates is actually going to make a difference. So we're gonna stick with 25 BP. We also don't know what the lag is. Is the lag three months? Is it six months? Oh, the Fed's communication is better? Or is it old school, uh, you know, uh, Milton Freeman 18 months before the Federal Reserve's rates are actually truly felt by everyone, right? So in other words, that's sort of my rant about about part one of these minutes. And then of course they make arguments here like hiring, uh, you know, surged, inflation surged, you know, some bad numbers in January. Okay, we get that. Some of that could be seasonal or it could be real. We just don't know the answer to that yet. That's redundant at this point. Uh, we do know, I wrote this here, that the terminal rate as of just about 20 minutes ago when I wrote it down was about 5.37. Uh, that's obviously up from where we sat as a terminal rate projection from markets of about 4.9. Now, some say that this rate could end up going up to 6%. Uh, personally, I, I, I don't know that the market's going to care that terribly. I think the market cares more, not so much about this terminal rate. I think the market cares more about the potential of a Paul Volcker having to come out because the Fed doesn't know what the F it's doing. And so I think the last thing the Fed wants to signal is they don't know what the hell they're doing. So that's why, again, I'm reiterating this 25 BP here. Now, uh, I, I want to get to the second part that's really important, but first, before I do that, let me just show you what Morgan Stanley said. So their takeaway on the FOMC minutes was that they were relatively and fairly balanced. Uh, they mentioned over here that almost all participants supported the 25 BP, right? They're picking up on part one as well. Uh, and now, now, this is where on the left side, I was sort of, as I was reading the notes, I wrote, look, saving one month of time basically is not worth the credibility hit that'll happen, basically what I just explained. But now this was really interesting because this is something that I've been talking about. I picked up on immediately when, when Jerome Powell mentioned this. I, I Obviously, I studied Jerome Powell very well. And when, when uh, Jerome Powell responded to, to um, uh, Dave Rubin about, hey, like this jobs report just came in hot, like what say you? Jerome Powell immediately quipped back and basically said, ah, well, financial conditions have already tightened and you know, one report doesn't make a trend. And, and like, this is basically the Fed saying, look, let the market respond to the data. We've been very clear that hot data means things have to get tighter. Good data means things can maybe get looser. And so the, the Fed's kind of like, ah, market's doing its job already. And that's fantastic because even though we've had a couple red days here, you know, maybe uh, coming up on maybe about a week of, of, of red, we're still obviously well off the lows where we've been. And I think now that this sort of catalyst of the Fed minutes is behind us, markets are kind of like, okay, like, should we kind of start going back on that uptrend of the Fibonacci retracements, right? So, and that's because markets are looking going, okay, well, maybe it's just not that bad. Like, okay, so slightly higher rates for slightly longer. Okay, great. The stock market doesn't care about that. The stock market, in my opinion, cares about getting Paul Volcker. The stock market doesn't care about a slightly higher for longer terminal rate. But you know who does care about a slightly higher and for longer terminal rate? 
real estate. And this is where everybody seems blind to what Jerome Powell is actually trying to do. And I'm going to play you this from my TikTok. Because I, I played this like a long time ago. I thought I get so excited with the Fed. Uh, anyway, uh, let's see here. Let me make sure we got the volume over here. Let's go ahead and pick this. I, I don't want to blow anyone's ears up here. Uh, is it Holy this one? Crap. I just want to get the audio literally going here. just warned us that home prices might be coming down. And even though he's not certain, he just oh, gave the biggest forward. warning of Come slash join. Fast forward a bit. Somebody or a young person looking to buy a home. You need a bit of a reset. We need to get back to a place where, where supply and demand are, are back uh, together and where inflation is down low again and mortgages are, mortgage rates are low again. So this, this will be a process whereby we ideally we, we, we do our work in a way that where the housing market settles in a new place and housing availability and, and credit availability are at appropriate levels. Holy yeah, so, so uh, I mean, internalize that for a moment. Think about what you just heard. If you're a home buyer, wait for a reset. We need a housing market to settle in a new place. Why would Jerome Powell say we need the housing market to settle in a new place? Uh, duh, because have you heard of the wealth effect? The wealth effect is when your wealth goes down, you spend less money, right? Not so fast. It's not actually your stock wealth that matters that makes you spend less money. Because maybe we've already adopted uh, some of the psychology of money of, of, you know, hey, you know what? In the long term, things tend to work out. That's fantastic. But it's actually real estate that reduces the, uh, spending via the wealth effect. Robert Schiller from Princeton, famous economist, came up with the Case-Shiller Index for real estate. Real estate is what kills spending. When real estate goes down, People spend less money. Why do you think Home Depot's like, oh yes, it appears people are going to start spending less money because real estate prices are going down. We've been talking about this on the channel for a year that real estate related companies are just gonna keep suffering and suffering and suffering. And your big barometer of this is the 10 year treasury yield, which the 10 year treasury yield, it ain't going down. In fact, it keeps going up. So in a weird way, look at this. The 10 year treasury hits a, uh, uh, you know, a high from November and what's the pre-market? Oh, look, all the stocks are red. NASDAQ's up one, per, or, sorry, all the stock uh, indices are green. Uh, you've got the Dow up a third. You've got the S&P 500 up half a percent. NASDAQ's up 1%. Uh, you know, oh, you've got oil green here. It doesn't matter so much in, in the sake of this. We're just gonna focus on bonds and stocks here. But point is, you can have a rising stock market and rising yields. And then people like get this crazy thought in their head, but, but wait a minute, Kevin, I like, I was told by the basic finance stuff that when yields rise, stocks become less desirable. Now you go like, congratulations, you've made it to finance 101. Now let's teach you the big boy stuff. And the big boy stuff says, as long as we're not getting Paul Volcker, your opportunity cost of not being in stocks is substantially higher than the stupid four or 5% you're getting on, on the treasuries right now. That's why you could actually see yields rise and stocks rise because the Fed doesn't care so much about the stock market. The Fed cares more about the real estate market. Now, let me prove that to you by actually showing you what they said yesterday. And this is the big part too. Look at this box right here. This is a phenomenal box. L just, just listen to, to this one. All right, here we go. Oh God, just hold on. My stupid iPad is uh, uh, being stupid. So stand by. Let's refresh that really quick and then I get this for you. Okay, yeah, there we go. Now you can see it better. Oh gosh, I just get so excited about this stuff. I'm sorry, I apologize. Maybe it's the like five coffees I've already had. It's like 5 a.m. 
The staff provided an update on its assessment of the stability of the financial system and, on balance, characterized financial vulnerabilities of the U.S. financial system as moderate. Good. Okay, so we're not breaking shit yet. Fantastic. The staff judged that asset valuations, valuation pressures, remained notable. Okay, that's not great, right? Because if asset values are high, the wealth effect is in essentially a great place where people can feel like they're still spending lots of money because they haven't. In particular, the staff noted that measures of valuations in both residential and commercial property remained high and that the potential for large declines in property prices remained greater than usual. Prices are already down 10 to 20% in various different, nationwide, real estate prices are already 10% off peak. In certain markets, you look at like Austin, Texas, Vegas, uh, Phoenix, Boise, you're, you're down 20% already. In addition, the forward PE ratio for S&P 500 firms remained above its median value despite the decline in equity prices over the past year, above its median value, okay, right? The staff assessed that valuation pressure had eased for corporate bonds and leveraged loans as spreads in markets had increased from recent lows. Okay, fine, great, fantastic. So maybe, maybe bonds are being priced appropriately, but I want you to focus for a moment on what they said about stocks versus real estate. For real estate, they said large potential for large declines, right? I, I'm literally going to use their words here, potential for large declines. What else did they say? They said valuations remained high, right? Valuations remained high. Those are their words, not mine. What did they say about stocks, specifically the SPY, the S&P 500, which has a lot more consumer staples in it, which haven't really had as much of the stock declines as like tech or growth, right? Like they didn't mention the NASDAQ, they mentioned the S&P 500, okay? Well, what they said for the S&P 500 was above median. So valuations for the SPY are above median trend. Okay, so which one seems more scary? Potential for large decline, valuations remain high, or above median? The Fed is sending a huge signal here that it's not stocks that are still like in a horrible place, although there's a risk that those companies exposed to more of that consumer staple sort of safety idea like your McDonald's are going to get effed because they're going to have higher, and, and even like the companies like Walmart, because you're going to have higher labor costs, higher food costs, but they're not going to have PP. They're not going to have the pricing power to be able to pass on those extra costs. Read the Tyson Foods earnings call and you can see exactly that. Read Energizer, read, read the earnings calls for these companies. You'll see that, or I'll just give you the bottom line. But anyway, those are companies that are probably still going to get hit. So sure, the spy could still move towards median, although I think a rising tide lifts all ship. The, the big red flag here was for real estate. So if you really wanna know what was said in those minutes yesterday, let's make it super simple for you. Check out the flash sale on the programs on Building Your Wealth down below and researching stuff the way I do. But also join me in those course member live streams every day because it's included in any of the courses you buy and in the Elite Hustler course, you get an exclusive Saturday live stream uh, focused on business. So when we do financial analysis uh, during the week, on uh, the weekend, on Saturdays, we do uh, business analysis and it's great. It's really fun. So check that out. Uh, I'm always adding to these programs as well. So I, I don't think they get dated at all. And if there's ever anything that's missing, people send me an email or let me know in the live streams and then I, uh, and then I add it. It's a beautiful thing is you get lifetime access. So check that out, link down below. But that, folks, is my summary on the FOMC minutes. And that is very, very important. Now, somebody here says, Kevin, way too bullish. I'm sorry. Well, look, 
I've talked about the bear case many times on the channel. I go through the bear case all the time and I don't actually think I'm bullish. I'm actually providing you where I am bearish. I'm being very, very crystal clear here. I'm highly bearish on real estate. I'm highly bearish on the SPY. I'm highly bearish on staples. I'm highly bearish on oil. I like people are like, oh, Kevin, you're just a bull. I'm like, are you like, like, hello? Like, uh, are you missing something? Like how many times have I been bagging on specific certain sectors that I think are going to perform poorly? doesn't mean I'm gonna be right, but I'm being very, very clear. Bearish on things I just mentioned. I won't reiterate it. But I'm also very bullish on the things that have been sold off because I think they're freaking phenomenal value opportunities. High free cash flow, decade-long pricing power plays, chips, energy, EVs, autonomy, robotics. But I don't want money losing companies because, yeah, we might go through a recession. So I'm insulating myself with what? High free cash flow. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> I think I'm pretty clear, man. I think I'm pretty damn clear. Uh, so I, I, anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But God, <laughs> I don't know. It's entertaining. Uh, okay. So, oh, goodness gracious. We got to talk about the train derailment. Now this, okay. Oh, God. All right. This is going to be data you probably haven't seen before. But I, I, I find it so fascinating. So, so fascinating. Let me get it already. It just take me a hot second here. So, oh, hold on. Let me see this revision over here. Let's listen in this for a moment. Uh, right now, and the ten-year and the two-year pretty stable as well going into the session. Rick Santelli standing by at the CME in Chicago. Rick, the numbers, please. Yes, we are looking for our second time around the block on fourth quarter GDP and initial continuing claims. Let's start out with initial claims: one hundred and ninety-two thousand. Good news if you're looking for a better economy, not so good news if you're looking for what the Fed does to a better economy. Uh, on the continuing claims, 1,654,000. Both these are less than expectations. Both these are sequentially less than last week, at least until any revisions come forth. Our second look at fourth quarter GDP gets downgraded by two-tenths of 1%, from 2.9% to 2.7%. Consumption gets hit hard from 2.1% all the way down to 1.4%. Now the Moneyball numbers on the pricing index, 3.9%. This is hotter than our last look at 3.5, and I'm sure that that just popped interest rates and dropped stocks. But do keep in mind, this price index was created in 1947. It hit 9% in Q2 of last year. Q2 of last year was 9%, so now here we sit at 3.9. By my math, that's less than half. If we look at the personal consumption expenditure quarter over quarter on the core, it is 4.3, 4.3. Also, just like the index, higher than expectations, higher than our last look, but well below the six. All right, let me give you the numbers my way. I appreciate his passion, but I'm gonna give you the numbers my way. Okay, so the GDP price index is just another potential inflation gauge. The last reading was 3.5. Now it came in at, with a survey of 3.5, we got 3.9. Okay, so slightly higher. That also could be because of energy prices, right? But that's why we go to the core, which removes food and energy. Core PCE. Now note, this is not a month over month gauge. This is a quarter over quarter gauge. Last quarter was 3.9. That has elevated to 4.3. Not fantastic. We are still seeing some of that stickiness, even in the core prices, right? So, so that is something to pay attention to. 
Personal consumption also falling. Uh, last was 2.1 in the quarter three. Q4, the expectation was two. We only got 1.4. So you're getting a lot of noisy and mixed data. I, I, I don't know that uh, this information uh, leading right, at, uh, right ahead of the PCE numbers coming out tomorrow is, is relatively uh, as salient or as important as the numbers we're going to see tomorrow. I don't think this really changes anything. It's a noisy GDP figure. It's not even a January figure. This is a, a Q4 set of data on, on GDP and an old measure, uh, an old way to measure prices. I'm not terribly worried about it. Obviously, I pay attention to it. I respect noisy signals, but let's let's watch for a trend. And I personally am much more interested in seeing month over month information right now than quarter over quarter information. So. Tomorrow, we will actually be getting the PCE, which we also do expect to potentially be hot thanks to the prior data. Note that the PCE uh, deflator month over month, that's just a fancy way of saying it, the CPI month over month, okay? Uh, that is expected to be 0.5 on the survey, and the year over year expected to be 5%. Core month over month, 0 0.4. Uh, core year over year, 4.3. That's the expectation for tomorrow. So uh, again, this quarter over quarter nonsense, if, if anybody gives you any kind of bullshit clickbait on it today, it's, it's like, you're you're, do, you re do you really want to know about October, November, December right now? Or do you want to know about January and February? So let's move on. Okay, now we need to talk about uh, the blah, 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 train thing. Okay, so I'm gonna keep this quick because I, I, you know, I, I, I mean, some people have really been asking me to cover this and I, I respect that. Uh, obviously what's happened is, is a complete disaster and complete SH9T show and, and, and it's just, everything's just a disaster, okay? So uh, let's talk about this. We need to talk about the train derailment because there's a fight going on beyond, between Marco Rubio and Pete Buttigieg. There's also a fight going on between Trump, Trumpists and, and Obamaists. So there's a lot of this left-right fighting going on. And y'all know me as Mr. In the Middle. I ran for governor as Mr. In the Middle. I came in second place out of the candidates. I won San Francisco. That was really cool. I, I, I gotta go visit San Francisco and pay my respects. But the point is, I want to go through some of the reality of what's actually happening. So we're gonna look at some of the letters that are being talked about. The letters, very, very important. We're gonna look at what is the Senate saying. We're gonna look at what courts are saying. We're gonna get a little bit of a different perspective on uh, what actually happens with the train derailment and potentially what caused it. Now, this is really important because obviously right now in East Palestine, Palestine, thanks to the train derailment, a lot of people getting sick right now and it's kind of scary. We don't want to see that because, well, after all, there are going to be massive lawsuits. People are doing their individual testing. Why? Because they don't trust the government to do the testing for them. In part, one of the reasons people don't trust, and I'm gonna get into some of the letters, in part, some of the reasons people do not actually trust the government are because of the nonsensical responses that we're even getting from the governor of Ohio. So obviously, if you haven't heard, there was a trail derailment at the beginning of uh, February. One of the issues was that one of the rail cars wheel bearings overheated. When it overheated, it caused to a, uh, it led to a fire. 50 train cars derailed and they spilled a bunch of toxic chemicals. Now, rather than, than, than just leave the toxic chemicals or try to continue cleaning them up because of the hazards associated with cleaning them up, the uh, rail agency or, or the, the rail company decided it'd be a fantastic idea to just conduct a quote-unquote controlled burn and burn the chemicals, leading to a toxic plume of black smoke. And uh, people complained 
complaining about dead chickens thanks to all the toxic air, but dead frogs, dead fish, nasty chemical uh, uh, odors throughout the town, people complaining about rashes and coughing up blood and issues that they haven't previously had. This is despite the fact that the government is trying to suggest, oh, everything is okay. Don't worry, our testing suggests everything is fine. Of course, now there are allegations that the testing that's being done was actually being done by the railway and their contractors. And so the EPA is kind of like, okay, y'all need to go test and let us know what those tests say. Oh, wow, and lo and behold, if the company is involved in conducting these tests, wow, everything is safe, don't worry. You could drink the water and the air is fine. Look, listen, after COVID, nobody believes that. That's why people are doing their own testing right now and people are like, I, I don't know how you're saying there's no contamination. I smell it, <laughs> right, I feel it. It'd probably be a good idea not to be in this area, but let's listen to the governor. And I hate to say it, but this is probably the most embarrassing clip for this governor. This is very, very bad, but listen to the governor of Ohio, and then we'll get into some of that fighting that's happening between Marco Rubio and, and, and the Senate and so on. So let's go ahead and listen to this clip right now. These folks have given results to the water testing that are accurate. I mean, a lot of these folks are rightfully untrustful of these tests. Uh, the initial tests that were done were being done by Norfolk Southern. They were being hired by independent contractors from Norfolk Southern, correct? Look, look, these are these are tests. The tests that we are doing, uh, we're, we're doing double testing. Uh, so you know. No, notice he doesn't deny that uh, the railway is actually conducting the test, right? But it gets it gets worse. Testing is being done by the either Ohio EPA or the U.S. EPA. Okay, that was not the case to start, though. Uh, well, let me just, why, why does we, we, we continue? We continue to do to do that testing. Gotcha. Well, one more question, uh, if that's okay. So, the um, what took so long to get FEMA involved here? Um, go ahead. What took so long to get FEMA involved? Look, the most important thing and was reaching out to uh, look, the, the, most the federal government. You would uh, on an interview I watched. You said straight up that uh, the, the President Biden said that he would provide aid. I don't think he's done nearly enough, and I think a lot of residents here do. But you said you didn't return the phone call. It seems like it's been thing after thing. I didn't and say that. You know, look, the president called me and said, "Anything you need?" Uh, I have not called him back uh, after that. After that conversation, we I will not hesitate to do that if we if we're seeing a problem or or anything. But I'm not seeing it. Why isn't there federal right. money now for these people to move? Well, there should be, but the governor Dewine has to ask FEMA to come in, and he hasn't done it yet. You didn't say that. No, no, I did, I did not say that. Come on, man. Uh, what I said was the president of the United States called. Mm -hmm. Or you hadn't called back. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're not letting you're not letting me finish. Classic. So, look, the president of the United States called and asked if there's anything else we can do. I told the president that the U.S. EPA had been here from the beginning. Within hours, they were here. They're working very, very closely with our Ohio EPA. So they're going to continue continue to do that gotcha. and that's that's what's going on well i, I hope y'all Okay, uh, first of all, shout out to the person who says, looks like Bill Gates' long-lost brother. That's hilarious. Anyway, that was terrible, okay? That's a terrible show of, of basically, as soon as he got caught in a lie, turning around and, you know what? You're not letting me finish my sentence and walking away. I'm sorry, Mr. Ohio Governor, Ohio Governor you're probably not going to get reelected after this disaster. This is very, very embarrassing. Now, we've got to talk about these spats that are going on between the politicians. And I want to give you some real insight into maybe what's actually going on here. Because listen, there's nothing I hate more than politicians cherry-picking bullcrap about who's actually at fault of in, in these issues. 
I can't stand that kind of stuff. And so right now, one of the things that you have going on is you have Marco Rubio, Pete Buttigieg spatting on Twitter. And I want to show you the reality first. And this is this also leads into Trump versus Obama. OK, and, and this is the whole idea here is to show you what's actually going on. OK, so first of all, Marco Rubio says, hey, Secretary Pete. Why were you MIA on the trail derailment? Uh, derailment and it is kind of derangement, but anyway, derailment. Uh, then uh, Marco Rubio says, Pete Buttigieg lies to the media, claiming my 2021 letter calling for more track inspections was a letter calling for deregulation. He is an incompetent who is focused solely on his fantasies about his political future and needs to be fired. Okay, so Marco Rubio doesn't like Pete. That's obvious. Marco Rubio is a Republican. Uh, Pete is a Democrat. It works for the Biden administration as the, the head of the uh, sec uh, Secretary of Transportation. So Pete Buttigieg replies and says, the facts don't lie. The 2021 letter you signed was obviously drafted by the railroad industry's lobbyists. Well, first of all, that's an, that's an opinion, the, the second part. So we're already conflating opinions and facts. But let's see what the facts are, right? So Pete Buttigieg goes, goes on and says, it, the letter, supports waivers that would reduce visual track inspections. Oh, shit. That doesn't sound good. Wait a minute. Marco Rubio, did you sign a letter that would reduce visual track inspections right before a derailment thanks to a wheel bearing failure? And now Pete Buttigieg continues and says, now, will you vote to help us toughen, toughen rail safety, accountability, and fines or not? In other words, Pete is taking this idea that the railroads are at fault and you contribute to it because you called for less visual inspections. But you want to know what the fact is? And this is why, in my opinion, you come to the channel here. This is why you come here. The fact of the matter is that letter is right here. And does the letter actually call for less visual track inspections? Listen to what I'm saying. Visual track inspections. And the answer is yes, that is true. Pete is correct. It supports reduced visual track inspections. But guess what it also does is it replaces visual track inspections with better, more efficient, automated track inspections using technology. So see how like you get uh, uh, politicians who try to screw with you. Let me read you some of this. A critical step in the utilization of new technologies is the Federal Railroad Administration waivers and testing programs that provide the freight industry the opportunity to achieve the next level of track equipment and employee safety improvements. Basically, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit here, rather what, what they basically do is rather than solely rely on individual people conducting visual inspections, they instead rely on data monitoring and technology that measures how are our wheels doing? Are things more shaky? What are the algorithms saying? And now you could take that labor and allow that labor to go to where the abnormalities are to find where defects are. Now, this piece here alleges that these ATI, these automatic track inspection programs, have proven safety benefits of this concept. These tests have resulted in an over 90% reduction in unprotected main track defects per 100 miles tested. Now, hey, maybe this letter was written by some lobbyists, right? That's possible. That is possible. And so we're going to do some more research here in just a moment. And I'm going to show you how this politician stuff just grinds my gears. But I want to be very clear. Yes, 
Marco Rubio signed a letter. Right there is a signature. Yes, Marco Rubio signed a letter that calls for less visual inspections. Fact. However, false that the letter actually was calling for less safety. It was actually calling for more safety and better inspections. Now, how do we know that the automatic technology is actually better? Well, this is where you could look at a case that was uh, basically litigated by the United States Court of Appeals between the Federal Railroad Administration uh, the uh, and, and then the uh, basically the unions of the railroads, okay? So you could look at this case. It's a case that was decided on July 15th, 2022, case number 21-1049. And short of going through every bit of this case, let's look at some of the salient items for it. First of all, they talk about these waivers, and they actually uphold visual waivers in favor of automated technology because the studies provided directly by the unions show that they're safer to use automatic technologies, whether it's for braking, uh, brake inspections, or just track inspections. This court case upholds that the studies do show an increase in, sh in safety from automatic inspections and waivers. When we hear uh, certain waivers, right? When we hear waivers, we automatically think, oh my gosh, waivers and less inspections. That means less safety. Not necessarily, not necessarily. In fact, the industry is working to get better. And I'll show you what's potentially actually standing in this because I'm not like, I'm not a shill for the railroads, okay? Like, let me be like crystal clear about that really quick. Like the railroad effed up here, okay? They, they highly screwed up over here, massively screwed up. It's obviously a for-profit institution. I get it. They screwed up. They got a lot of work to do and I would not trust the tests at all. So I want to be very clear about that, right? So I'm not here to like shill the railroads. I'm here to show you how politicians manipulate what's actually happening. What's actually happening is you have both sides that want more automated inspections, but now they're pointing fingers at each other for complete nonsense because they're kind of both trying to get things to be safer, both the Republicans and Dems, but they're pointing the finger at each other going, no, 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 you want less safety and you want less safety, which is not actually true. And so the next thing that comes up is people start talking about brakes. Okay, well, why did we go from automated braking under the Obama administration and calling for more automated braking under the Obama administration to less automated braking via the Trump administration? Okay, so immediately that's an argument that's circulating on Twitter that says, oh, all the Trumpists are for deregulation, they caused this accident. You know, we should have stuck with the Obama era stuff. Okay, well, this is where it gets really nasty, okay? And I'm gonna keep this simple, but watch this. Here's a document, and, and I'll tell you, I've been up like all night researching this stuff. Here's a department, uh, Department of Transportation letter talking about electronically controlled pneumatic brake devices, basically automatic braking systems. And the biggest, like, these are great. These automatic braking systems work. They're, they're fantastic. They're great. Like, they, they improve rail safety, right? But they have some problems with them. And now you're going to, it's not this part, but the problem that comes after this, you're going to see where the real problem, in my opinion, is potentially. And then this is going to be like the aha moment where it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> anyway, watch this. Okay, ready for this? So, in the conclusion, they talk about how great these braking systems are, the automatic braking systems. 
but they talk about how there are actually some issues they have not actually found solutions for yet. They say, look, there's some software issues. Even after we're fixing the software issues, some of our tests are failing. There are backward compatibility issues. We basically need new train cars. We need newer systems. We have issues. Look at this. They literally say here, there are issues presented during testing for which a solution cannot be identified. So there are still problems with some of this new technology, right? And so then you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so there's new technology that would make railways safer, right? Like, why don't we use that new technology that would make railways safer? Okay, I'll tell you, this is, this is the big like, what the F, what the F? You wanna see why we're not investing more in trying to get this technology, the automated braking systems, the automated inspection systems, and making them function better? Here it is. Here's just an example for you. Rail Labor files joint comments on the railway agency's you know, uh, standards. And take a look at this one right here. The Brotherwood, Brotherhood Railway Carmen, this is, this is a union, right? BRC, joined with four other rail unions to oppose new regulations from the railway authority. And here it is, among other things, the unions argued against proposed changes, innovative changes, mind you, for the following reason. Reason number one, the regulatory framework right now is already good enough. Fine, whatever, I'm paraphrasing that. I'm gonna read you this one word for word. Reason number two, the railway uh, unions do not want more of the innovation. Here you go. The changes would lead to decreased safety by having fewer brake inspections, fewer timely discoveries of defects and other problems, and by allowing risks associated with brake system degradation to actually increase across the rail network. That doesn't sound good, right? Translate that for a moment. Less labor. It's a union. The whole point here is you have a union. And what does a union want? A union exists. It literally exists to increase union membership and to protect employment for employees, which means more employees. What did the regulators want? Both Republicans and Democrats, what did they want? More automation, better inspections. So in other words, physical waivers and automated inspections that do a better job as well as automatic automated brakes. But somebody is standing in the way going, we don't want automated brakes. We don't want inspections. And I hate to say it, but the smoking gun appears to be the unions. It's not Pete Buttigieg. It's not uh, 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 Marco Rubio. I don't think it's Dems or Republicans. I think they all want more rail safety. I think it's unions who are protecting the reason they exist, more labor. Now, look, I'm not saying unions are bad, okay? I'm just saying, from the research that I've done, it appears to be that there are ways to make trains safer, but unions do not want labor to be replaced. Duh, that's why they exist. So what's an easy way to do that? You stand in the way of innovation, which could actually be better than human labor. Now, I want you to think about this logically for a moment. What do you think is better at determining whether a brake should stop or like a train should stop or if there's a track defect? An algorithm that's measuring vibrations and is, you know, thousands of times per second measuring how a train is moving through a train system, railroads, 
or a dude walking by with a clipboard going, nah, looks good, and keep going. Come on, it's obvious. It's so obvious. Now again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the unions want to have their jobs replaced by algorithms that do the job better. Maybe I'm wrong. I just don't think I am. And I hate to say it, but it's this kind of bullshit on Twitter that's so wrong. Marco Rubio didn't sign something saying we want less regulation. And Pete Buttigieg is not talking about the real problem because guess whom the unions often vote for? But then what happens is after Pete Buttigieg tries to call, basically call Marco a liar, you get all of these these comments from people that are like, how does self-professed and a proud Christian like you square with the fact that you regularly break the eighth commandment? Which is like, thou shall not lie, thou shall not lie or deceive people, right? And it, it, it's like, he didn't. Like, ah, it's not that. Ah, I'm sorry. It's it's so freaking frustrating. And, and and look, this this is what I try to do on the channel. I I try to look at like from a first principles approach here. What's standing in the way? What's actually causing the problem? I guarantee you, it ain't the bullshit tweets going back and forth that are gonna solve everything. Anything? They're not gonna solve anything. All they're gonna do is piss Americans off more. But I, I don't give a crap whether you're a Democrat or Republican. I think if you just watch this whole segment on the Ohio train derailment disaster, you're looking going, oh shit, the, the, come on, man, that's ridiculous. Like, this is not a Republican or Democrat issue. It's a union issue. Just saying, just saying, okay? Like, I, I, uh, oh. <laughs> and then, and then of course you get all like, I feel bad because like, I, you know, I get hate on the internet too. I try not to pay attention to it, but like, I feel bad because it's like, you know, people are calling uh, each other liars here. And it's like, there's, there's so much more than you can explain via a tweet. But, but you know, I guess people's attention spans are too short to actually like learn. This is why I have courses on building your wealth through the psychology of money, uh, through real estate investing, zero to millionaire. Because people honestly don't understand the things they don't even understand. It's, it's in, unconscious incompetence, right? They don't even know that they don't know. I know I don't know everything regarding this, but I've already gone through that phase of at least trying to crack what's actually happening, right? I know I'm not a train expert. I, I, I don't know anything really about trains, right? But at least I know enough to realize I don't know and I want to learn more. This is like when people are like, oh, Kevin, you should just... You should just hire somebody in different areas to go look at real estate for you. They don't understand why I am physically going to the places I want to buy real estate because they don't even know that they don't know. They don't realize they are such at such a low level of competence that they are just completely incompetent. And, and they will never wake up to that because they don't allow themselves to wake up to their incompetence because it's so much easier to remain incompetent because that's popular. If you're an incompetent idiot spouting bullshit on Twitter, you happen to get a lot of likes from other incompetent people. And that's popular, so it actually encourages you to be incompetent. How the hell am I supposed to explain what I just explained in the last 10, 15 minutes here in, a, in 140 characters on Twitter? It ain't gonna work. And even if I manage to do it, it's not gonna get a lot of likes. Because what gets likes on Twitter is the incompetent shit. <laughs> Ah, it's so frustrating. I'm sorry. I, I, I am so sorry. I get so heated about this stuff because I like I feel like the people who watch my channel and, and, and I feel like most people are good people. Everybody's trying to do the best they can with the information they have. But people get basically just getting lied to 
because it benefits uh, the the liars basically because they get more more you know like like likes and and hits and stuff and it's just like ah this is why the mainstream media is broken it's like why is the mainstream media so divisive because well it gets way more hits and clicks being neutral very hard very 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 hard and, and, and anyway okay I'm sorry I'm sorry I had to go through that that was that was a disaster. Um, Oh, good Lord. Okay, let's move on to a different topic. Goodness gracious. Let's talk about something nice, like Gavin Newsom. God damn it. <laughs> Sorry, I ran against the guy for governor. It's not much nice to say. Oh, wait, we gotta do it. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. We've got an update on Tesla in California, and boy, this is a little bit mind-blowing, but folks, Tesla is now announcing that their global head of engineering is actually getting placed in California, in Palo Alto, a place where you can't buy a home, a good home, for less than $3 million. My son happens to like Palo Alto because I took him there once and their playgrounds are amazing because they got a lot of money over there. And so why the hell would Tesla build a menu or, or build basically an engineering workshop, workshop more like an engineering headquarters. Why would they put an engineering headquarters in Palo Alto, California? Well, Elon Musk explained this directly and essentially the idea is that there is a lot of engineering talent in San Francisco. And this makes a lot of sense. In fact, I'm gonna grab something from JP Morgan Asset Management and some research that they put together in just the last couple days. And this is the kind of stuff I do, okay? I, I sit here and I read research. This is an 81-page report. And on page 64 of that 81-page report, take a look at this. Number of unicorns, in other words, smaller companies that, that are very innovative and get a lot of private equity money, a lot of investments, a lot of dollars, have a lot of skilled employees. Look at the number of unicorns by city from the point of view of private equity markets. And what do you have? Ah, most of them are in San Francisco, about 50% more than the next highest city in New York. Now this is a piece on China and this particular piece talks about how like Shanghai and Beijing are catching up and they are. That's really a topic for a different video though. But it's very interesting because as much as people bag on California, if you want AI investment, venture capital money, San Francisco is the best place for that at this point. You know, other areas are coming up. You got the Silicon Slopes in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Utah. Uh, you've got uh, New York. You've got Miami. Uh, you've got Austin, which is trying to become, uh, you know, an area. I think Miami, they call it Silicon Beach, Silicon Slopes, Utah, right? Silicon Valley, obviously, uh, uh, San Francisco and such. But it's very interesting to me because Tesla made it clear they've got 47,000 direct employees in California. And uh, Elon Musk made it very clear that Tesla Fremont is the most productive automotive factory in North America. Now, that will change. Elon Musk here is trying to be complimentary to, to Tesla or to, to California, and I'm going to give you my thesis on exactly why that's happening. But that's that's true for now. It won't be much longer because the most productive factory in North America will probably be in Northeast Mexico or the Giga Texas, right? Uh, and that's also where the Tesla headquarters are. But the headquarters of just engineering are going to be in California. And this facility will employ about 1,400 uh, engineers. And what I thought was really interesting about this 
is, oh, well, also it's worth noting that NVIDIA, which just smashed earnings, phenomenal earnings, huge player in not only autonomy, but also in AI, artificial intelligence data centers, uh, cloud-based artificial intelligence, but also uh, it just smashed earnings. I mean, absolutely incredible. They, they, they're talking about an inflection point in AI, but they also are a massive automotive player, NVIDIA is, right? In that they're trying to sell basically systems on chips to companies like Mercedes so they can actually more effectively conduct software updates. Right now, only about 31% of Mercedes recalls, according to Forbes, are done over the air, whereas 99% of Tesla's recalls are solved via an over-the-air update. Uh, and NVIDIA actually provides a lot of the backbone for a lot of other automotive companies, whether it's NVIDIA, I'm sorry, whether it's NIO, Mercedes, Volkswagen, they provide the backbone for a lot of, of the chip technology. And guess where NVIDIA is located? Ah, Santa Clara, the Valley, right? Up by San Jose, San Francisco. Like this, this is the AI hub. Like say what you want about California, that's the AI hub. I just flew from San Diego to, to uh, Ventura, California yesterday. We got to fly along the coastline and then we crossed above Malibu and saw all the crazy homes and everything from, from a pretty relatively low altitude. Gorgeous, like California's freaking beautiful. Uh, but, but the point is, NorCal is fantastic for the AI, autonomy, and engineering world. Now maybe that'll change. A lot of work from home is changing that and, and, and messing things up, but there's nothing like the in-person startup culture. That's why with my startup, we require anyone who's being hired, new hire, They've got to work with us in person. Come travel with us, work with us, be with us. There's a massive difference from in, in a startup culture. So I think really what Elon here is doing is twofolded. Number one, it's trying to foster the startup culture to always be at the front of innovation. There's no better place for AI innovation, in my opinion, and clearly uh, Elon Musk at least somewhat agrees with this, NorCal. Now, the second thing that's very interesting, because, you know, uh, Gavin Newsom tried to turn this into like a, po a politics thing. And he's like, you know, we've got more jobs in California. We've got more hunting jobs, more fishing jobs. We've got more manufacturing in California than any other state. Elon's response to that line was fantastic. Elon's like, oh, well, it is a big state. <laughs> and, and he's basically kind of saying like, dude, Gavin Newsom, like, stop stroking yourself, okay? That has nothing to do with you. You have the highest population out here. Of course, <laughs> you have the highest amount of jobs in all these various different sectors. Fantastic quip back from Elon Musk. But here's the 4D chess move, in my opinion. Elon Musk has also very clearly aligned himself with uh, Texas, and Republicans for manufacturing and, and manufacturing freedoms, right? That's obviously very, and, and, and sort of freedom of information via Twitter. Big fan of aligning himself with Republicans, right? That's been, whether that was intentional or not, he's done a phenomenal job over the last year of basically being the greatest Republican advocate ever, okay? Obviously, from a political point of view, people on the left do not really like Elon Musk right now. Look at what Elon Musk just did by employing about 1.4% of Tesla folks, engineers, at a new headquarters in California, creating potentially new jobs, although we don't even know those are gonna be new jobs. People could just be moving from their current old headquarters into that headquarters, right? So they might not even be new jobs. It could have literally been as simple as Elon Musk like signing a lease and then moving 1,400 people to a new engineering headquarters, which is like kind of a bullshit line anyway. It's like okay, like you had an engineering department there anyway. Now you're just signing a new lease and calling it the engineering headquarters, right? <laughs> like, like, come on, this is a 4D chess move. You know what the 4D chess move is? 
to make Democrats like him again. It's freaking brilliant. Elon Musk was just at the White House shaking hands with Biden, folks at the uh, transportation department. Why? It's so they can get billions of dollars of tax credits to expand the Tesla supercharging network in exchange for slowly in a way that doesn't affect congestion, although I think it will affect congestion. Really, that's just sort of me kind of being a little skeptical and jaded. But anyway, that's because I'm a Tesla owner, right? So obviously, like, I don't want other people at the charging stations because I don't want to wait. <laughs> that's me being selfish. Okay, but anyway, Elon Musk working with the White House to build billions of dollars more of charging infrastructure is great. Why? Because it, it gives Tesla billions of dollars to make the greatest charging network even greater and even better and even more innovative. But that also makes but the Biden administration shout out Elon Musk and Tesla about how great they're being for sustainability and climate change, something Democrats like. So Republicans, we already got, we got enough Republican Elon Musk, right? We, we had enough of that in 2022. Now he's playing the other side. Hey, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Give us billions of dollars in tax credits and we'll expand our charging network and we'll let y'all plug in. And don't worry, we'll charge you Democrats who don't drive Teslas more money to charge at our stations. But oh well, we'll take the billions of dollars of tax credit. Freaking brilliant. This guy's a genius. He's playing both sides. Elon Musk is brilliant. Now, he goes to Gavin Newsom, the epitome of the left, the poster boy of failed schools, failed homelessness, failed mental health education, a failure of a state. They will send stimulus checks to people making $500,000, no joke, look it up, $500,000 people, uh, households making up to $500,000 in October of 2022 got stimulus checks rather than actually making the appropriate investments into the state that needs it most, actually trying to make California more competitive again. Jeez, Lord. That guy, why would Elon Musk go talk to that guy and quip back at how great California actually is by actually kind of trying to undercut Gavin Newsom in like at the, at the, like the perfect moments? Why is he announcing this? Because again, Gavin Newsom's the poster boy of the left. And even though Elon Musk might not actually be doing anything special or unique, it makes it feel that way. Hey, let's have an event. Let's celebrate the signing of this new leasehold interest that we have in NorCal. We're gonna move some engineers over here. It's great. Gavin Newsom's like, oh, I wish we could be cutting a ribbon right now. Oh, yeah, and Elon Musk's like, he's such a dummy. Uh, and in the meantime, Guess what? Now all of a sudden the lefties who hate Elon Musk are like, damn, Elon Musk is helping out Biden. He's helping out Newsom. He's, he's, he's coming back to California. Yeah, yeah, California's great. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 this is great. It's like, he just opened up the demographic again. He just, he's bringing Democrats back to Tesla. Uh, this guy is absolutely freaking brilliant, okay? Like he realized he went a little too far, went a little too right last year, and now he's flip-flopping to the other side, not in a way that insults the right. Okay, nobody on the right, in my opinion, is insulted by Elon Musk going to the Biden administration, getting billions of dollars in tax credits to expand the supercharger network. Like, that, that's not offensive to the right. Okay, you're putting 1,400 jobs that may already be there in NorCal. That's not offensive to the right. But it's uh, like, it's like a, it's like a boner to the left. <laughs> you know, it's like this is, <laughs> look, Elon is brilliant. This is, this is like the, the biggest 4D chess move, and it is so perfect coming right on the backs of all like the Twitter files and all the drama. It's like, damn, that guy. <laughs> okay, that's that's all I gotta say. That's that's all I gotta say. <laughs> he he he's brilliant. All right, enough of that. <laughs> enough enough of that, because I'm gonna get enough comments of people being like, okay, Kevin, just get on your knees for Elon. <laughs> Look, 
I, like, come on, man. I think you could be on either side and be looking at this going, yeah, no, you're not wrong, Kevin, but still get on your knees. <laughs> okay. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, I'm having too much fun with this. Um, supposed to be going to the course member live stream uh, here soon. We've got uh, a new flash sale, by the way, an inspiration of the uh, uh, Tesla Investor Day coming up on uh, March 1st. So if you're looking for uh, lifetime access to the programs on building your wealth, great pricing, check out that link down below. Uh, any of the programs, most co most popular right now uh, is the uh, Stocks and Psychology Money Group. A lot of folks joining that pretty regularly. Uh, and then of course, the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing Course. I, I think that's partly in part because I think it's pretty clear real estate or uh, stocks are likely on an upward trend while real estate is still on its downtrend, we're gonna get that delayed cycle, uh, which is uh, you know pretty pretty ex pretty well expected right now for a delayed bottom on real estate. Okay, now we've got to uh, unfortunately react to a bear. So let's go ahead and uh, react to a bear here, and uh, let's let's see what the bear has to say, uh, and then we'll jump on over to the uh, CM live. So, Mr. Sam Zell. All right. <laughs> uh, this is a great one. All right, stand by. Okay. Now we've got to talk to a bear's perspective because every day I give my perspective, I like to see what people are saying on the other side. And keep in mind, I've been very, very clear. I'm bearish on staples. I'm bearish on oil. I'm bearish on quite a few things. Things that, have, that did well in 22, I don't think are going to do well in 23. I'm looking for pricing power value, high freight cash flow, high pricing power, energy, chips, uh, uh, automotive, autonomy, robotics, right? But it has to be high free cash flow. That's what I'm looking for. I'm also of the believer that we're in this Nike swoosh recovery. It's going to be very long. It's going to take longer than we expect, and it's going to be very volatile. But I think we're on a slow trend up where maybe buy the dip makes sense again. And I think the real estate market is going to bottom probably six to 12 months after the real estate or the, 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 the stock market. So in other words, more pain still ahead for the real estate market. So I'm bearish on real estate as well and real estate related services, but I'm bullish on certain stocks. Uh, and so let's, and, and I'm also bullish on this idea that we're not going to see a Paul Volcker. I do think rates will probably have to go a little higher than we expect and for longer than we expect, but I don't see a Paul Volcker. But let's listen to what Sam Zell has to say because he has some opinions about this potential recession we're facing. And I'd like to add my commentary because that's what I do. Zell of Equity Group Investments joins me here at Post 9. It's good to see you. Good to see you, Sarah. So there has been a bit of a rethink in the markets about recession. Is, is that something you still expect? I, uh, I haven't gone through that rethinking. You're uh, still negative? I, well, negative is the wrong word, but when you spread out free money for years at a time, uh, you create, you know, significant drag and uh, I, I just don't see how we're going to avoid a slowdown as that whole process comes to an end. Yeah, and I want to be very clear about this. Well, he's making the argument that, look, we're likely to see a recession. Like, how, how, do, you, how do you not see a recession to get rid of this inflation, right? And I think this is where it's important, where you have to make your own analysis. Remember, I run an actively managed ETF. I sell courses on building your wealth. We happen to have a flash sale going on right now. I am a licensed financial advisor, but this is not personalized financial advice for you. I think you need to look at the markets and you need to ask yourself, there, there are two things, there are really two ways we, we go, two, two primary ways we go. Way number one that we go 
is basically even if inflation comes down, it ends up coming back up. And then we end up having to get PV'd, which is Paul Volckert. Jerome Powell becomes the version of the early 80s where he raises interest rates to 10, 15, 20%, absolutely pushes the economy into a devastating recession and everything's horrible. That is method number one, potential number one. Potential number two is we don't get a Paul Volcker, but maybe you get like a shallow recession. Okay, so, so if this is GDP right here, you get a slightly negative GDP. Staples get hit the worst. Uh, the stock market starts basically pricing through that recession and through that slower growth. It's like, okay, NVIDIA's earnings are flat. Does that mean we think NVIDIA's growth is gone for the next decade? Of course not. It means we had some pull forward. We go through some flat. We go through a little period of negative, and then we're fine again. Those are the two trains of thought right now. And you have to ask yourself, which train are you on? Are you on train one or train two? And you probably allocate accordingly, okay? You probably, if you're on train two, you're looking at high pricing power companies, high free cash flow. If you're on train one, you're in bonds and cash. Uh, you know, if you're in the middle, then you have a mixed portfolio. You know, that's the way to look at it right now. All right, let's keep going. Well, I guess the, the idea would be that the Fed would get really lucky and engineer a soft landing here because the data's strong, the labor market is super tight and inflation is starting to come down. Yeah, but is the, is the definition of coming down going from nine to six? Well, it's, <laughs> yes, and then it has further to go. Sure. Well, but the point is six, six is a Still serious very problem. Yeah. And you know, so you think the Fed's going to have to do even more than I, the market expects? I, I think that, um, you know, I think the Fed screwed up by allowing it to, to the, the, you know, the zero interest rates to go on and not only the negative zero interest rates going on, but the fact that they were still printing money, quantitative easing was still happening when inflation was 6% in March of 2022. How stupid is that? Fed did make a big mistake. He's right. For too long. Uh, I think we're just beginning to pay the price for that. And, uh, I, you know, it'd be nice to say that it'd be great if the Fed got lucky. Uh, I've been around for 50 years and I've never seen the Fed get lucky. Uh, all I've seen He's making the argument here that can the Fed actually engineer a soft landing and pull off getting rid of inflation? Uh, this would essentially make Jerome Powell a god if he could pull off a soft landing, no recession, uh, no mass unemployment, and somehow prices go back to stable. Uh, good luck. Uh, that, there, there are indicators that could be happening. I happen to lean towards the idea that that could actually happen. Or we get that soft recession, shallow recession, uh, and, and, and the stock market prices through that. Now, who knows? Maybe that's Goldilocks, a fairy tale, or hopium. But let's keep going. The that Fed do is, is mistake in terms of not acting fast enough. So how do, you, how do you take that view and prepare some of your companies and your portfolios for, for that eventual well, outcome? Well, I think you, you basically do two things at the same time. One, you prepare for higher interest rates and higher costs. And then at the same time, uh, you also prepare for dealing with inflation. So a year and a half ago, we went to our companies and said, hard to imagine we're not going to have significant inflation. And we need to prepare for it, not respond to it. So in effect, yeah. we reached out and, and changed a number of our policies uh, to prepare our companies for escalating costs. Are you now preparing for disinflation or you, you're just not convinced it's no, there yet? No, I, yeah. I, you know, I, you know, preparing for disinflation would be a very optimistic thing to do at this point. I think it's going to take 
a while uh, for um, you know the inflation pressures to ease. And I think that's 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 what we have to look forward. Sounds to. like you think the the stock market may be a little too excited about this notion that inflation is coming yeah. down and, and the, the Fed's stock gonna market pop. has a long track record of being too excited about everything. He's he's also not wrong about that, right? It's easy to be too optimistic about what's happening in the market. Uh, and, and yes, for those of you in the comments wondering, yes, this is live. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So, so this is this is really interesting. Uh, now, prepping for higher rates for longer. That's in fairness, where we look at this and go, do we really believe that the real estate market is going to go back to two or three percent interest rates on a thirty-year fixed uh, rate quickly? No. And the longer it stays high, the more pain comes to the real estate market. Is it possible that the stock market sees through it? Yes, but only if the stock market does not believe that number one is going to happen. If the stock market removed, if right now somebody went to you and said, I guarantee you scenario number one is not going to happen. Like Jesus Christ himself came down and said, world fear not, there will not be another Paul Volcker. I, could, I would bet a lot of money that the stock market would skyrocket. And that's because the stock market is not afraid of number two. The stock market is afraid of number one, my belief. Let's keep going. Uh, both negative and positive. And uh, I think, you know, when the stock market reflected the fact that interest rates were going up and inflation was a problem, uh, it was a little slow to pick that up. Uh, and then at the first opportunity, the stock market has gone and flipped and said, oh, everything is wonderful and we're going to have a soft landing. Uh, I think both those extremes are unsupportable. What about real estate, which is a big business for you? It's, it's what you're known for. How, 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 much, how much is real estate off the lows, if at all? Because we have seen mortgage rates come down. Yeah, but, you know, think about the fact that, you know, uh, if you had bought a house in January or February or, or you know, last November, your, your mortgage rate would have been two. And today it's six. Yeah, uh, that's still pretty, high. That's a pretty staggering jump in a relatively short period of time. And I think there's just going to be, uh, you know, I, I I think the real estate industry as a whole uh, is got to deal with loans and all kinds of things that were the result of very very low, unrealistically low cost of capital. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, he's making the argument here like, hey, look, you're still going to see prices decline, which reiterates what the Federal Reserve says in their FOMC minutes, where literally in the FOMC minutes, they say, and I'll show you the summary first, and then I'll show you my citation. They literally say real estate has the potential for large declines. This was just said yesterday, just released yesterday. Real estate has the potential for large declines. Valuations remain high. And then when they talk about stocks, they say the SPY is just slightly, well, it's, it's, it's above its median trend, uh, which I think is propped up by Staples, right? So look, this is important. Here's the citation for that. So you could read it yourself. You could take a screenshot of that right there yourself. 
Look, I do my best to provide as much value as possible every single day. If you want to take advantage of the flash sale for the programs on Building Your Wealth, I'd love to see you in the course member live streams. We're going to do some fundamental analysis. We're going to jump into NVIDIA and Matterport now in the course member live stream. I'm going to make myself another cup of coffee, and that's exactly what we're going to do. I'd love for you to be a lifetime member. There's no recurring fee and monthly. It's, 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 it's just lifetime access. Whatever content I add in the future, you get. And I'd love for you to be there. I love you all. Thank you so much for your support, and good luck out there.